back on air. To Once Upon a Time in the Ashes, aficionados, old and new, a hearty welcome. We are continuing to plot a course through the backwaters of Anglo-Antipodean cricket history. We navigated away to Australia in 1970-71, picking up Ken Eastwood, Ross Duncan and Tony Dell along the way, as well as first mates Ian and Greg Chappell. We sailed on to the 1977 Ashes series in England, where we dropped anchor for a while and were warmly greeted and entertained by Messrs Barlow and Malone. And we would have dearly loved to have added Trevor Lachlan to our band of merry once Ashes. Trevor played his one and only Ashes test at the Gabba in the 1978-79 series. Sadly, Trevor hasn't been in the best of health, so we will have to put his story on ice for the time being. We wish Trevor all the best and look forward to telling his tale soon. All of which means we have suddenly sailed into the uncharted waters of the 1980s and we're more than happy to be marooned for a while in one of the most iconic series of all time. 1981, Botham's Ashes, you remember? Thrilling wins for England at Headingley, Edgebaston and Old Trafford. The Ashes secured. No real need for the final dead rubber at the Oval. But without that sixth and final test, we wouldn't be in the company of Mr Paul Parker today. Let's welcome him to the middle. Paul Parker was a prolific run scorer and outstanding fielder for Sussex and Durham. He scored 19,419 first-class runs at an average of 35 with 47 hundreds. He played his one Ashes test at the Oval in 1981. Paul, welcome to Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. Thanks, Graham. I mentioned your fielding in that intro there, and funny enough, Graham Barlow was a, a recent guest on the show, and he was also an outstanding fielder in the covers. How did you develop that kind of skill, and how important was it that you were a great fielder in terms of your contribution to the team? Ha, I'll answer the last bit first. I mean, basically, as a batter, if you score not, your fielding is 99% of the game. Do you know, I... I don't know how it happened. It, I was always able to move well. Mm. And from an early age, I threw things, lots of things. I mean, we were in Africa when I was young and played games at school, which involved throwing tennis balls at people. <laughs> a game called Stingers in particular when I was about seven. Uh, quite a violent game, but it was, it was all part of what you did. You mentioned Graham Barlow there. It was quite funny, actually, because I remember playing against him in my very first first-class season. He'd play for Middlesex. He was patrolling the covers and I was playing for Cambridge University. And I, I took a quick single to him. And then I was sitting next to him at lunch and he sort of leaned over and said, Oi, take care who you run your singles to. And I thought it was quite funny, actually. <laughs> That's the first time I met Graham. But Yeah, and then you mentioned growing up in Africa. It was, well, what was then Rhodesia, wasn't it? How did that come about? Why, why were you over there? My father was a journalist in Essex. I'm in a brood of six. My parents had three children in England in the 50s. My father saw the job offered by the Argus group of newspapers, I think, took it, and they settled in Bulawayo initially in Rhodesia. So they moved to Salisbury, as was. It's now Harare. And he became the deputy editor of the Rhodesia Herald. And so, you know, I was the first of the African 
part of the family. So three uh, Britons and three Rhodesians. But you mentioned playing ball games over there. So you obviously you were there for quite a time then, were you? You remember your childhood there? Well, I was there until I was 10. Then my father was thrown out of Rhodesia by Ian Smith. He'd written an article about the effects of uh, sanctions that mm. would come into play in after a UDI, Unilateral Declaration of Independence, in 1965. Uh, Ian Smith and his government wanted to know who had told him, who had given him his information. My father refused to, to give that, the freedom of the press, if you like, mm. and they put him in prison for a week. Uh, there was an appeal in the High Court, and he won the appeal. But because he wasn't British, the government said, OK, you've got a month to leave the country. And so my father and his, uh, my mother and six children had to decamp very quickly out of Africa. Wow. So I think it was awful for my parents, but a huge, excitement, a huge adventure for us. Yeah. Well, we are jumping ahead here, but I noticed that you were invited to go onto one of the rebel tours to South Africa in 1982. Now, did your dad's politics inform your decision not to go on that tour at all? Well, that's a really good question because sort of had a think about those times and just post because I played my my one test in eighty one, and I had all season probably half been thinking, "Oh, crikey, I might be on that boat to India," and I wasn't. In eighty two, the offer came to join the Rebel Tour, captain by Graham Gooch, I think. I wasn't in the main picked in the main party. I was I was asked to go as an extra. Late, uh, Tony Gregg of England and World Series cricket fame came on the line and said, "Hey, son, get your bags back. You you've been invited to go to the South Africa." And I didn't go. And I'd like to say that I had high and um, altruistic reasons for not going, uh, i.e., politics and and I, I'd like to say perhaps my my pup father's influence was on me there but actually it was much more practical I just played cricket for England mm -hmm. those who were going on the tour were banned for I think up to three or four years and I thought wrongly as it turned out mm -hmm. that I'd be playing again for England provided I got my form back so I, I chose not to go for that reason well let, let's just take rewind this slightly in terms of aspirations when you were growing up was it always cricket or were there other avenues that you could have explored I think if I fell into cricket because I was good at it and I'd been through the, the Sussex young cricketers system mm. and was then attached to give it a contract in what was sort of a gap year. Uh, having said that, I had such a poor season in the second 11 in 1975, uh, which was the year before I went to university. When I finished the season, I think I played about eight second 11 matches and quite a few one day under 25 games but hadn't scored very many runs and I remember thinking at the end of that season crikey if that's professional cricket thank god I'm going to university and then the following season I had a really fortuitous start for Cambridge University cricket and scored a few runs mm. um, and from then I was put in the first team when I got back after the university term into the Sussex first team so that spilled me into cricket after then, I, I suppose the die was set. Do you remember your first first-class century for Cambridge? Was that against Essex? Yes, well, <laughs> I do, because uh, it was dramatic. I think I was about to be dropped. I'd scored oh, very few runs in the first five innings. This was my third first-class match. 
in the second innings. I had scored 17. I think it was David Ackfield was bowling. I swept at David Ackfield and I caught the toe end of the bat and it lobbed to a chap called Keith Punt, who went to throw, as he was catching, he went to throw the ball up, but he took his eye off the ball and dropped the easiest chance you've ever seen. <laughs> and I, at the stage, I was hanging my head and just walking up the wicket and walking off. He dropped it, I saw, and so I suddenly sprinted. He tried to run me out at the bowler's end, and he would have run me out had he hit the stumps, but he missed it. And it went for four runs. And so I was in. And then that was, so I was in overnight, 20 mm. odd, not out. Mm. And the next day uh, I stayed and batted all day and got a double hundred. We're going to talk about Ashes cricket in a little bit. What are your first memories of Ashes cricket, though, in terms of watching it or the radio? Do you remember when you first came into contact with it? Probably John Snow bowling to Keith Stackpole. I think he would always take on the bouncer on the first ball. I remember Bill Laurie being incredibly, I can't even say boycott-like, it's a bit rude, but I mean, sort of, he had that reputation of being you know, stuck like glue at the, at the crease and not terribly exciting. The chapels, but they were coming more into my era. So those are the first images. And I, I probably played, we had a, not a long drive, we had a drive down the side of the house. My brother and I used to play Ashes, series he was a little bit older than I was so for you it was always ashes cricket because that's what I'm always interested in because obviously it's got that history but actually during your peak years the West Indies were the preeminent side would it have meant more to you to play against them or was it still the ashes that was number one I think the ashes has just that place of rivalry as you say the 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 West Indies were the the team in especially in 76 when I played my first season I think they were well, they were touring that year, I believe, mm. and they had the, the fearsome four fast bowlers. So I would have been excited to play any test for England. I would have absolutely loved to have gone on a tour, which I never managed. I've never been to the subcontinent, for example. I think the, the Ashes certainly, especially the one I played in, was the, uh, the goal. But uh, being disingenuous, I'd love to have played at any stage. Well, talking about the West Indies, that's a, a nice link to some of the highlights of your early years at Sussex. I'm thinking of the, the 78 Gillette Cup final against Somerset that had not only Botham and Viv Richards, but Joel Garner in the side as well. You know, terrific Somerset side. But you managed to beat them that day and you were man of the match. So was that one of the highlights <laughs> of your cricketing career, would you say? Yeah, I've been very lucky, actually, in that sense. Mm. Um, I played twice at Lords in a final and... We won both yeah. and I performed in both. So I was delighted that that one we had to chase down. I think what was probably the highest chase at that stage, and it sounds incredibly low. Now, I think it's about 215, 220, I think something like that. We had managed somehow to nab Viv Richards out. He got a top edge. I think John Barkley was bowling. Both of them had smashed a few. We had a good start. And then our two... Uh, superstars, Imran Khan and uh, Javid Miandad, both fell. And I was joined by a chap called Paul Philipson. Mm. And between us, we managed a, a really decent partnership, which just, you know, we just took us nearly there. When you have a target to chase as a batter, my thought was, I've just got to be there at the end. And cricket's a funny game, isn't it? Is it more important to you to score those runs or is it the team success that's more important? I think on that occasion, I probably would have been happy to win the match. And the runs are a huge bonus and it came a huge surprise to win the man of the match. I'm very pleased I did. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I think 
it's it's a very interesting question you ask because cricket can become unbelievably self-centered um and obviously if i'll turn it around a little bit because when i was teaching and coaching cricket if you asked a boy how did you get on at the weekend he would always say oh i did really well i scored 50 and i said did the team win mm. he said oh yes and yeah. a, it, was, it seemed to me that perhaps perhaps one's own performance in that in, in that answer is always yeah. slightly more important in cricket than perhaps the team's and do you remember much about those big days like that 78 final, about the celebrations afterwards? I know in 86 when Sussex won the Nat West Trophy, the Gillette had morphed into the Nat West Trophy. I'd scored a lot of runs in that because it was a, that, was a brilliant, that was a brilliant day as well. Strange enough, on the next day, we also managed to beat Yorkshire and they were very surprised that we were in reasonable condition after the, the night before. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, 86, let's jump ahead to that. That was brilliant as well. You were chasing even more that day, weren't you? 243 to win, I think. Imran Khan was pivotal that day, as well as yourself. He got 50 not out on top of your 85. A word on Imran Khan. How, how important was he to Sussex? And what are your memories of him? Well, there are so many memories of Imran, and probably some which aren't repeatable, given his current uh, position in, in world politics. <laughs> I... <laughs> I've got some good, some lovely memories of him. He was a, a real personality within the team. He was a real personality within the country, given his superstar status as a Pakistani superstar cricketer, world world beating cricketer. I mean, he'd also been part of that World Series cricket, which I've which I've heard in the other podcasts that you've done. As a bowler, he was hugely confident and he loved bowling and making the ball swing. He liked reverse swing in the ball I mean he he introduced the reverse swing to possibly English cricket and it was very very effective on occasions as a batsman he was a super batsman brilliantly talented but very nervous before going into bat and he would pace around he and I were given for some reason I don't know there was a local sponsorship sponsorship was quite sort of amateurish in those days and <laughs> the local um, casino sergeant york's casino in brighton sponsored sussex and we both had to attend a dinner and we were given glass decanters for doing something that month and then we had to drive to to leicester that night so we dinner finished at 10 or 30 11 and we were both driving up the m1 and i fell asleep at the wheel and just stopped a horrible accident uh, as we were drifting into the um the hard shoulder you know we, we survived and imran didn't know anything about it if I was a headline writer, I would probably write something like Imran Khan saved my life. <laughs> gave me a nudge just as I was heading for the hard shoulder. I'd like to say he was, but he was fast asleep. <laughs> um, Another time I drove him down to Cardiff and he said, do you mind if you go via my flat in London? Because he had a flat in London. He had the, the hut. So I said, yes, all right, Imran. And again, I was driving. And then we went to, to Putney and we, we had no motor or very few motorways at that stage. We got down to Cardiff at about two o'clock in the morning, having done this <laughs> detail. But anyway, fantastic cricketer. Well, well, let's get on to 1981 then, because that's when you played your your Ashes Test, as, as we said, maybe the most famous Ashes series of all. At the start of that season, is that a realistic target for you? And is that what you're thinking? I need to get runs in May, early on in the season, to put myself in the frame. Yeah, I think it's a combination. I hadn't really at that stage. I was playing for Sussex and very happy to do so. And Sussex were on the up as a county. John Barkley was captain. I was vice captain that year. And it was going very well that season. Mm. Uh, so actually, I didn't really think about England 
I thought about the Sussex were going so well. I didn't even think about the batting. It was just happening and we were winning matches. And so I, I was very caught up in the county scene. And as the games continued and as England's form fell away quite dramatically at the start of that series, I felt, well, there was potential. I could be, and people were saying, "Oh, you, you, you're likely to be in the frame." And so it was, it was exciting. And certainly, when the events at Headingley happened, mm. where which was one of the, 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 if you like, the most famous moment, one of the one of the most famous moments, I was actually batting really well at Hove against Warwickshire. I can remember even who was bowling bizarrely. It was Anton Ferreira. We were battling to win the game, which would then put us on top of the championship table. Yeah. And the crowd at Hove, such as it was, kept disappearing. And and I thought, why is this happening? Well, they were disappearing because they're going to watch television screens of another wicket falling at Headingley. I think that had England lost at Headingley, then I might have had promotion earlier, given the form that I was in and I was in the frame. But for very understandable reasons, and I can't talk about it now because the, the results speak for themselves, the right decisions were taken. When finally, in uh, September or late, late August, I was chosen, my peak of my form had disappeared. Mm. I wasn't batting very well at all at that stage. And I was, I was selected late uh, for that sixth test match. I was absolutely thrilled to be selected. You know, what, what a joy. It's what you, you go for. I was over the moon. But I was picked and it was announced the week before uh, on the Sunday. We, Sussex, were playing Australia yeah. at Hove when it was announced mm. over the Tannoy, because that's how it was announced. You didn't know 11 o'clock on the Sunday morning or whatever it was. And we were playing. I was captain against Australia because John Barkley was resting mm. to keep his energies for the county championship. I didn't have the best Sussex team to play Australia. I walked out to bat against Rodney Hogg, who wasn't playing in the Australian team. My first sight of Australia that year was playing an over which lasted about 15 minutes because Rodney Hogg kept overstepping. And on the last ball of a uh, legitimate ball, I got a faint glove to the wicketkeeper, caught behind for two or not very many. As I was walking off, uh, the, the umpires deemed it was bad light and everyone was coming off. If you think back to the innings you told me about earlier for Cambridge University, where you did survive that night on 20-odd not out and then scored a double century the next day. I'm not saying you would have done that, but you would have had an opportunity. <laughs> oh, let's say I would have done, yeah. Let's say you would have done, yeah. It's fickle. And so the Australians, I played against Australia, and then I, the next week I was playing in the Test match. And as I said, I poked around and got out for North first innings and poked around in the second innings and got out for 13. End of story. What was it like walking into the change room? Was, there, was it intimidating at all? I think... I'm sort of quite shy, really. I don't like to push myself on people. And, yeah. and, you do, and you want to, you want to fit in. You want to be part of it. But mm. in cricket, in any team, you have to contribute to be part of it, to feel part of it. There was a meeting the night before. Mike really was welcome. He said, Paul, you're welcome. Feel part of this. But it was, um, I, I didn't feel part of it, if I'm honest. And I mean, obviously, people like Jeffrey Boycott, both of them himself. I mean, at that stage, to me, they were all sort of opponents. Mike Gatting, I, I knew a bit. But as I say, the Middlesex were one of our main rivals and they were always incredibly successful at that stage. And they'd always dumped Sussex. So you, you have this sort of rivalry almost. I've got to know them better, much, much better since. It's, it's, 
it's, it's lovely now, but at the time, no, I didn't feel part of it. But coming back to the luck element, after then, Graham, it's not luck. Up to that stage, as you said, I'd had a great start for Sussex, and I hadn't really thought about anything. I just batted. And so when it went wrong, and it didn't just go wrong in the test match, it went wrong for about two or three seasons. So you make your luck, and I had to work out why it was happening. And I'm, I'm sure now you'd probably have videotapes of people playing and you have 10 coaches telling you what to do. But I had to work it out myself. And by 1984, by dint of working really hard late at night in indoor nets at Hove, I used to come back from London because I was, I was living in Brighton, commuting to London. And, you know, it shows you the complete selfishness of the profession. So my wife has looked after my, my son and I get home at nine. I, I'm a bear with a sore head because she said, look, if you if you can't sort it out, just why don't you go to the nets? It was her idea. My brother-in-law, Jack, living with us at the time, he was about 16, 17. He was going to Brighton. I said, Jack, can you can you throw? He said, yeah, I can throw. I said, right, OK, I'd like you to come down to the nets with me. So we went down to the to the indoor Arthur Gilligan nets, bad lighting. It had this lino flooring of half it and then the artificial grass. And he used to come and throw for about half an hour, 45 minutes. Mm. And I said, look, I just want you to try and hit me. No helmets. And I just knew I had to stand still, keep my head still, watch the ball. As soon as you did that, you weren't in any danger whatsoever. Then, bizarrely, this bearded, very bright, blue-eyed chap appeared and, and he turned out to be a guy called Simon Packard who was a, a practicing artist but liked his cricket and he could bowl he could bowl quick so he came he became part of this sort of team that right. this crack be, unit this crack unit I learned a, a really much better method of batting I had a fallback position in 1984 I was a much better cricketer so I think the luck element yes but You've got to have a decent method and and you've got to be absolutely dead set in your mind. So did you think you had technical problems then towards the end of 1981? I probably did. Yes, I by by 83, I knew I had, but I had to work it out. I didn't know what they were. Yeah. What I developed in 84 was a method which would have done me well in 81. <laughs> so I was a better player in 84. You know, I scored nearly 1800 runs and... Yeah. I didn't get a look in, but when you're competing against the middle order of Gower, Gatting, Lamb, Robin Smith, Chris mm. Tavaray, it was difficult to break back in. It's interesting the story of once in a once in an ashes, but it's the rest of the story in terms of cricket, which is I wanted to get back and play again. It never happened, and I, I'm not alone here. It happens a lot. And um, what are your feelings just generally about that? Is it fair to only pick a player for one test? Should he be picked and given a run in the team to see what he could do? You know, because then you had the, as you said, the India tour straight after the Ashes, which, well, Wisdom said, Paul Parker and Mendes were leading run getters and likely, though unsuccessful, candidates for the tour of India. So do you think you should get that run in the team? Now I think it, things are better in, or maybe it's almost too professional now, but anyway, it, it's mm. better because uh, the p- players are, are given a, a run. And also there's, a, there's an England A team, the Lions, there's a path in. My father was furious with the selectors. You know, he thought, he, this, is, this is crazy. I'd failed. I, I wasn't livid. I was just cross with myself. But the Indian tour was what would have been the icing on that season's cake for me. But so much so that 
I hadn't even thought of what I was doing that winter, Graham. So when it came to it, in late September, I was in Brussels, uh, staying with my wife with her best friend. And I was on the phone to Sydney, Australia, to Tony Gregg. And he said, yes, I can fix you up with something at Waverley. $10,000 guaranteed. Well, when I got there, I said, this $10,000, what about it? He said, well, a lot of that's gone on the flight. I'd taken my young son and my wife to Sydney. We were penniless. And I made the decision after then that we would stay in England. So that was the, the fickleness of cricket. One moment I'm playing for England, the next moment I'm scratching around. If we could just speak about 1986, we've already spoken about the Nat West Trophy that you won against Lancashire, but you were also in the money, I have to bring this up, for hitting a huge egg <laughs> at Saffron's in Eastbourne. <laughs> the sort of sponsorship of the counties and local sponsorship was all very rather charming. And the local producer, I think his name was Paul Parsons, was the owner of a company called Stonegate Eggs, based near Eastbourne. For years, there had been these massive models of boiled eggs at key points of the boundary. And the, the prize was that if any batsman hit the egg on the full from a six, there would be a pot of money given to that player. Well, I don't know how long the sponsorship had been in place, but it had been a few years and nobody had hit anything. I think Imran Khan might have hit, if you hit the base, you got £150 or something. <laughs> and I think Imran had hit the base, and that was the only thing. So these eggs travelled with the Sussex <laughs> team around all their home games, so Arundel, Eastbourne, Hastings, Hove, and they sat at Long On and Long Off and, and at you know, Cow Corner where you, you might hit a six. I think I was batting, it was Jeff Miller was bowling, I had 30-odd, and I, you know, see, I fancied a dance down the wicket and I smacked it flat, didn't think anything of it. And then all of a sudden... I noticed the Sussex players who were watching were suddenly jumping up and down at the pavilion. I thought, what was this for? And the ball had hit the egg on the full. And these eggs were dangerous because they were aluminium and they had pinged off at a, a great rate of knots. And it was lucky that the hundred spectators who were there weren't hit. Anyway, I started thinking, I raised my back to them. And Jeff Miller said, well, he wasn't very kind. He said, what the hell is going on? But worse than that. And then I said, I'm really sorry, Jeff, we, we had this pot of money which has been sitting. I just won it. Any of the money that was won like that went into the, the, the team pot, so they were quite happy. That surely must be the most bizarre thing that ever happened to you on a cricket pitch. Did they present you with a cheque straight after the match? Or? Well, no, better than that. No, I had to do their big photo shoots with the local press, so Stonegate Egg and Paul yeah. Parsons. And, and I've actually got a, somewhere, I've got a cartoon of it in my benefit brochure, the Stonegate company had done taken an advert in a benefit brochure and they had done a cartoon of that. Oh, brilliant. And I think there was a book written, I think Michael <laughs> Simpkins, who's an actor, and yeah. I think at one stage, he, I think he went round the county grounds and he didn't know the story, but his book ends with this rather bizarre story that you've mentioned. And so I just sent him a, a photocopy of the thing I said, because he didn't know this story. Yeah. And he just said, that's the most su surprising and wonderful email <laughs> I've received. <laughs> yeah, I bet it was, yeah. That's brilliant. Let's just wind up the rest of your cricket career. Let, let's just pick out some of the highlights, if you don't mind. Being made captain of Sussex in 1988, was that a, a proud moment for you? And did that feel like a, a natural progression? Yeah, I, I think it had done. John Barclay had done it till 1986. And then Ian Gould did a year in 87. Sussex had come off there. Team peak, 
and we were you know in a stage of rebuilding i was part of that rebuilding and had a very young side in 88 as i say with imran filling in half duties and we had a young guy called merrick pringle no one's ever heard of him i had ever heard of a young south african could have become a very fine all-rounder did you put into practice any lessons you learned from the captains you'd played under and who was the best captain you played under well i think john barclay had done brilliantly and I, I i liked his cerebral approach to the game I and mean, he'd managed in his very quirky way the superstars at sussex imran khan garth theroux they played very well for him i think i brought my own ideas to captaincy as i said i, I had a, a young side i had a particular mission if you like there weren't any leg spinners at all in english cricket at that stage i'd love to see leg spinners play and we'd seen a a young guy called Ian Salisbury playing for the MCC Young Pros. And I liked the look of him. As far as I was aware, there weren't any um, leg spin coaches as such. But my father knew Richie Benno, who had been Australia's leg spinning king in the 60s. Because I'd also got hold of a, there was another leg spinner who'd been very successful in Sussex League cricket called Andy Clark. And I got Richie Benno to, he said he'd come down to Sussex to help me with a coaching session with these leg spinners. I got a letter from him still, I think. I, I asked him, I said, and what, tell me what you, your fee is. He said, Paul, I'd love to come. I wouldn't charge you anything. I just want it so good to see leg spin here. Anyway, Ian Salisbury went on to play cricket for England. Yeah. Andy Clark was very successful for a half a season till the county circuit worked out that Andy didn't really spin the ball at all. And that was fun. I enjoyed that. In particular, there was one time, now, it happened out of accident, but it was prescient, I think. In one John Player League game, the bowler before the game had pulled up with a hamstring. I'd already had the thought of opening the bowling with Ian Salisbury. But it, as it turned out, at Lancashire and Old Trafford, I also opened the bowling with Andy Clark. So we opened the bowling in the John Player League with two leg spinners back in 1989, I think it was. And had Andy Clark not dropped Wazzy Macram off quite a sharp court and bold, we might have won a game because it was going very well at that stage. And then he right. dropped it. Then Wazzy Macram got his, uh, got his eye in. And it was nice because the Times did a headline the next day, leg spinners open up. Quite uh, revolutionary, yeah. And I had four years doing that. was rather disappointed to be asked to leave the captaincy before mm. I finished my, what I thought was my rebuilding role. But as it turned out, it was a really good move that Alan Caffin asked me to step down as captain of Sussex because it meant that I, again, a bear with a sore head. And why do wives always have the good decisions or the good ideas? So why don't you phone Jeff Cook at Durham and see if they want, want you to play? Because at that stage, they were recruiting. I rang Jeff Cook and said, Jeff, do you want a beaten up old pro ex-captain of Sussex? He said, yes. My nickname was Polly. He said, yes, Polly, we'd love you to come along. <laughs> Wisdom says of that, of Durham's first season in which you joined, it was the best of times and the worst of times for Durham in their first season in the county championship. Would you echo that? Well, Charles Dickens comes in handy there, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, it was fantastic. It was an amazing adventure. These old crocs have been got together. Botham and Dean Jones, mm -hmm. Wayne Larkin, they were all there. And I think in June, we were third in the county championship table and flying high. And then I think I'm going to pinpoint it to Chesterfield against Derbyshire, when a very generous 
sponsor, which are Scottish and Newcastle breweries, had said, well done, you're doing so well, we'll leave a crate or two of Newcastle Brown in your dressing room. And we were playing and it rained a lot and a lot was drunk. <laughs> and basically, from then, the season went downhill, but not because of the drink, because mm. actually, <laughs> but uh, li- hamstrings started to go, bodies broke. It was, it was a wonderful time. It was, it was great. What about that first, I looked up the first game against Leicestershire, which you actually lost, but you had a terrific game scoring 77 in the first and 117 in the second. And you put on 178 with both of them in that second innings. What was it like to bat with him during a long innings like that? It was, it was fantastic. I mean, both of them is, he just commands the stage. And when he's there, you let him flow. And he was flowing that day. You think, well, yes, this this is great. I'm, I, I wasn't, wasn't playing badly myself at the time either. Now you've mentioned that, I think, crikey, oh yes, I was there. Do you know what I mean? It, it was the one thing I remember in that season was both in bowling to Richards, and uh, Richards was then playing for Glamorgan. Glamorgan, yeah. And it was a Benson Hedges game, and both and bowled him probably a little dibbly away swinger. Richards turned the back too soon. The ball went off the, the leading edge, back to the bowler. Both of them dived forward and caught a very good one-handed catch. Mm. And that moment, that elation, I wow, look at this. And I was at mid-wicket and I could see this, and it was fantastic. It was a huge moment of elation for both of them. But we were part of something extraordinary. But as you say, that particular year, yes, the best of times, the worst of times. And what was he like off the pitch? Because obviously, if we turn this interview around full circle, you know, that 78 Gillette final, you were playing against him. That one Ashes test, you played with him, obviously only briefly, but then you had a full season with him to, to get to know him a little bit better. So what was he like? He's a huge character, good friend, bad enemy, and as always command centre stage, a man of moods as well, not always up, up. But when he was, he was a huge fun to be with. Dangerous if you try and match him for drink. You don't want to do that. We had a, a team meal of players to, to get to know each other before even the season started. I mean, there was, a, there was a month's tour to Zimbabwe, but there was also a team meeting. Mm-hmm. And we all arrived at this rather plush restaurant. Botham was in charge of the, the, the wine list. He got the hold of the wine list and... He only looked down right to the bottom and got the very best of the reds and four, the four bottles that four of us had. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then he left and that, with, he had a minder at that stage. And we were left with this massive bill. It was quite funny, but that's not, that wasn't Beefy's way. He's hugely generous. Was that the first time you'd been back to Zimbabwe? Do you know, it, was, it wasn't the draw to go and join Durham, but when they said we were going to Zimbabwe for a month, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So I'd been once since 1966 when it was white rule within Zimbabwe and then obviously there was a civil war but I went back in 1991 for a brief week I was on an MCC tour to Namibia I jumped plane at Johannesburg if you like and I went to stay with a chap called David Houghton who was captain of Zimbabwe very fine player that was the first time I'd been back Mm. but then to have the, the month there with Durham playing and getting to know the place was was amazing. Hey, just one quick question, just um, I don't think I asked you earlier when we were talking about the 81 Ashes. Obviously, that was the season when Sussex just were pipped to the post for the county championship by knots. How was that? How was the drama towards the end of that season? Well, the drama was amazing because we played some fantastic cricket matches. 
the game against Derbyshire, I think we won, courtesy of an Imran Khan mega performance. He was brilliant. Went up to play at Nottingham. We had Nottingham nine wickets down and a, a batsman called Mike Bohr was batting. Imran was bowling. To all intents and purposes, Mike Bohr was out, LBW, right in front of the stumps, given not out. We drew that match. And Nottinghamshire won the championship by two points. Had we won that game, we'd have won. And then in the so you ask about the strangest thing that happened on the cricket field. I'll tell you the strangest thing that happened on the cricket field there we which go. was not necessarily the, the hitting of the egg, but the celebration of the Sussex team after we found out that we'd lost the Chandy Championship at the very final day of the season. Because Nottinghamshire were playing Glamorgan and we were playing Yorkshire. Nottinghamshire at Trent Bridge, we were at Hove. Nottinghamshire beat Glamorgan in a day and a half. Mm -hmm. So we could not catch them. So they'd already won by the time this massive front of rain had come in, dumped a load of rain at Hove. So rain stopped play. We couldn't win the championship because Nottinghamshire already won it. Went into the dressing room very despondent. Now, during the season, Michael Robinson, who was centre forward for Brighton and Hove Albion, watched us. He'd given us a dozen bottles of champagne to say, you've done brilliantly this season, lads. Really enjoyed it. So the committee had come in and given us another uh, four bottles of champagne and they were all on ice in the bath. And anyway, it was raining. We cracked open the champagne. We were all in this hot, there's a big sort of rugby type bath. We were all in there drinking champagne and suddenly Ian Gregg said, right, lads, team streak. <laughs> so you're guessing it. The Sussex team but not the Pakistan Prime Minister and not the captain, John Barclay, did a lap of the Hove ground, still light, still raining, completely starkers. And we did the, the, the exercise that we were doing, the more the stretches off and everything. And then down the middle of the wicket, where the plastic had been put to protect, to keep the water off, made a fantastic slide. So we all ran down... We had to be very, very careful at the end not to catch our private uh, elements on the pins which were holding in the plastic. So I would say that's the strangest. I think, yeah, okay, yeah, that beats the eggs, definitely, yeah. And then, but the most remarkable thing was we had a function in the evening and we all managed to present ourselves jacket and tied for that somehow. So, yeah, you know, look at the highs and lows of that season. So, obviously, you were down after that Ashes test, but I know you didn't win the championship, but that sounds like a pretty excellent way to finish the season. Well, it was. We streaked into second place. Paul Parker, everyone. The naked truth, you might say. I'm sure you'll join me in thanking Paul for those terrific stories of a superb cricketing career for Sussex, Durham and England. I guess little did he think that that childhood game of stingers in Rhodesia would be replicated in a badly lit net in Hove as his brother-in-law hurled cricket balls at his head. And did he imagine his Sussex teammates would be jumping up and down in celebration, not because he'd hit the winning runs in a Lord's final, but because he'd finally managed to hit an oversized aluminium egg. You will be glad to hear that Paul managed to find the cartoon that immortalised his finest oval moment, as well as the letter from Richie Benno. And I hope you'll be equally glad to hear that I'll share them with you on Twitter at OnceAshes and on the website OnceUponAtimeInTheAshes.com. Anyway, I need to fire up the DeLorean and set the time machine 
for 1985. Arnie Sidebottom, Jonathan Agnew, Murray Bennett and Dave Gilbert await us there. And I wouldn't want you to miss them. Until then, I've been Graham Barrett and this has been Once Upon a Time in the Ashes. <laughs>